Welcome back to Raising Rare. In our past two episodes, we spoke to Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio separately. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with the two of them together. These are two dads who were first thrown into the world of rare disease and then somehow found each other. The result of their crossing paths has been nothing short of extraordinary. Many of you will recognize them as the founders of the Disorder Film Festival and now the Disorder Channel, available on Roku and Amazon Fire TV. Welcome back, everyone. Super excited to have you both here. Two of my favorite people and, and, and two of the people that are changing the perception of rare diseases across the board. Thanks for having me. Today, why don't you guys just start out telling us how the two of you met? Sure. <clears throat> so it was uh, 2015, and my wife and I had just gotten our diagnosis for our tests, and her disease was so rare it had no name, and she was the eighth known patient in the world. And I was just, I think, struggling with everything at that point. It was great to have an answer and a diagnosis, but it was also overwhelming and I, I didn't even really know what to do with that information. And my wife found out about Global Genes, about the the conference that they were having that uh that fall. And she pretty much packed my bag for me and said, You're getting on this plane and you're going out west and you're going to this conference. And before I knew it, I was out in California uh attending Global Genes, not even really knowing what the conference was about, uh what to expect, who I thought I would meet there or even what I hoped to accomplish. And one of the first people that I met when I was there was um, was Daniel. And we connected right away because my way of making sense of things and making sense of Tess's diagnosis at the time was to, to write about it, to put it, some things out there in the world and kind of own the diagnosis and be start to be public about it. It was the beginning of a process that I'm still doing right now, but I was just starting to do that. And Daniel had been doing that for a while. And so we, we connected right away on that front because he had been writing some things for the mighty and about his son, about Lucas. And he said, oh, you're a writer. I'm a writer, too. You know, we should talk. And so, so that's where we met. That was uh, at Global Genes in 2015. Yeah. And I'll add to that. Bo, probably many people who meet Bo have this same impression, which is to his great credit. He, he seems like he's he's going to get a lot of stuff done quickly and there's not going to be a lot of nonsense about him and at global genes it was as simple as uh his name tag he had added a photo of Tess to it i'm like that's so brilliant why doesn't everybody do that but then also you know he had done it all so quickly relatively quickly it was like his first year of diagnosis whereas i had been six years into the diagnostic or from diagnosis to getting myself to global genes and and each like we did have a lot in common but each thing we'd list off like oh i've written a blog post oh i've done a podcast or i want to make a film but i had taken six years to do those things and both seemed to have done them all in the past year it was really impressive it's i think that you know my coming into the world of of patient advocacy and and rare disease specifically it seems that you know global genes has been around 10 or 11 years and about that time is when they started picking up momentum you just had to wait for the momentum to catch you, Daniel, and Bo jumped right into it. Yeah, I often think that there are timing. Bo and, Bo and I's timing was sort of this uh, perfect storm of industry timing. You know, the, the social media powers had emerged. We could now find each other, we, the rare disease people. We could find each other and we could have bigger voices and we could do podcasts and reach people like that. 
but also industry had moved a bit away from its orphan mentality, orphan drug, orphan disease mentality into a maybe we can get things done and make things work on a business model here. So that shift was happening. And then the the technology shift, you know, where things, you know, whether it's whole exome or whole genome sequencing, those pieces became more affordable. So our movement, the rare disease community movement, really, as you say, sort of picked up steam then and has continued. So it's it's an exciting time, whatever aspect of rare disease advocacy you're involved in, there are more and more opportunities for it. It's incredible how you both met and got hit it up right away. But how did the idea of, of the Disorder Philip Festival come about? So it was a couple of years after that. We connected at Global Genes and we decided to stay in touch because we were both going to continue writing and I was getting a podcast off the ground about tests. So we, we stayed in touch a lot. We would just have a call every so often or do a lot of connecting on social media, liking each other's posts and so forth. And then in 2017, um, my wife and I had been talking for years with the uh, geneticist and clinician who kind of is credited with discovering Tess's disease, which is now called Howe Fountain Syndrome. And so we'd said to him for years, we can raise money for you. Let's do something. Let's start a foundation. And he said, wait, wait, I, I want to do that, but let's find some more patients and let me get some other things lined up here first. And, and so in 2017, we had our first family conference and he said, okay, now is the time. Go start the foundation. So that was the time when my wife and I were trying to get our organization off the ground, filing all the insane paperwork with the IRS to get 501c3 status planning our first big fundraiser, that kind of stuff. And so it was at that time that Daniel came to me and said, hey, uh, I think we should start a rare disease film festival. And I said, that sounds cool and all, but I am really busy doing this other stuff. And part of what I have to do is raise money to fund research into this disease. And the other part is, is find patients. But either way, I'm, I'm way too busy to do this. And I, I wish you luck. And I hope you can find someone to collaborate with. And he said, well, if what you're trying to do is find patients, then you need to make a film about this. That's what you should be doing. Make a film about Tess. And I said, again, great idea, but I am very busy right now and I don't have time to make a film. And I'm not a filmmaker. I have no idea how to make a film. I'm, I'm a writer and I make a podcast and I can write stuff for the mighty and, and a blog post. But I have, I have no idea how to make a film. I don't know the first thing about it. And he said, well, I made a film about Lucas and I know all about filmmaking and I'm going to help you and we should just do this. So I told him no a number of different times and in a number of different ways. And I'm really glad now that he would not let it go. He would not give up. I feel like it was even over a series of calls and not just one that he just was very persistent. And he said, you have to be doing this, however busy you are with your organization, that this is part of what your organization should be doing. And, and let's do this together. So that's how it began. Yeah. Although I love the compliment that Bo seems to imply I have these great powers of persuasion, but I don't, my memory isn't that it was that difficult to persuade him. There was a little resistance, but I didn't think it was that much resistance. <laughs> Daniel, how did you, did you think about the idea of running a film festival? What motivated you or what pushed you towards the direction? I often 
compare it to, and Bo's a runner, so this will make more sense to him. I compare it to the a lot of the rare disease advocates or any disease advocate will will start a 5K fundraiser or something. Like that's probably the last thing I should be doing. I'm not a runner, and you. I think everybody turns to their skill sets, right? Like. Sanath, your engineering mind takes you in a certain direction. And I had worked in Hollywood and movie marketing mostly, but I had made a few films and I had run a small town upstate New York film festival for a few years. And while that had nothing to do with rare diseases, it's, it was a springboard or a, a foundation of skills to make me think I could do another festival and, and why not do it in the area that concerned me most. And also, because our space is so small, I think there's a lot of challenges in the world that any one of us might be concerned with, whether it's you know, clean water or global warming or uh, child poverty. But for any of those, they're everyone's problem. So you can maybe exempt yourself and think they're, they're not my problem particularly, right? But when it came to Mankey's disease awareness, I just thought... What are the chances if I don't do it, anyone else will? No, are there any out of the 68 Menkes families that I know of, is there anyone with some filmmaking skills that's going to do this? And then in talking to Bo about if he was going to make a film about Tess, where do you show those type of films? We, we, we debated the pros and cons of what I had experienced uh, trying to do film festivals, traditional film festivals, and trying to do medical conferences. And each had their strengths but what we landed on is can we take the strengths of both and combine them so with the medical conference we saw the targeted audience that was very invested in caring about medical outcomes but those tend to be expensive conferences and not so easily accessible and the general audience film festival world was the opposite it's wide open to the public it's maybe a five or ten or cheap dollar ticket but the audiences don't really show up ready in the mindset to hear rare disease stories. You know, they're looking for comedy, sci-fi, horror, whatever. And, and then we get thrown into the mix with this, you know, somewhat jarring tale of what it's like to live with rare disease. So I think where Bo and I landed was, can we create, if that event didn't exist, could we create it? And then the next step was realizing we don't just curate films for this. We have to sort of curate the audience as much as we can. And we really did encourage a mix of patients, of course, advocates, but also industry, people that might work towards cures or treatments, and, uh, and then clinicians too, because they might make the diagnoses and can't expect every doctor to know all 7,000 diseases, but maybe this film will sit in the back of their mind and they'll catch something they would have missed otherwise. That's incredible. When, when, when I got my diagnosis, my son's diagnosis in 2019, um, I remember right after that, there was a film festival that you ran in San Francisco. And I, I, I clearly remember this because it was on my way back to work from, from uh, back to home from work. And I was just looking at, at, the, at the list of finalists on uh, my phone. And I was looking to see if there was an animated film in there. Because I, my hope, I, I love Pixar. I love Pixar movies. And I was like, if Pixar can make a movie on rare diseases, it should be amazing and it should spread the word a lot. And, you know, you know I probably found the Disorder Film Festival through Twitter and landed on this list. And I was like, okay, maybe let me see if there's an animated film. And there, there, there was one. And I, I thought there was also, I remember there was also one where there was 
no one speaking in the movie, but it was just all, um, you know, a silent movie. It was just incredible. I've watched a few of them. We, I think Kevin and I show an episode with the Global Genes Conference last year, where we, where we interviewed the for folks that participated in a, in a few of these films. It has been incredible. I should say that, you know, I would love to see these movies play in Netflix, Prime Video, uh, you know, the mainstream, what we consider to be mainstream global media today. Um, because these movies do a phenomenal job at explaining what life is like to have a rare disease. And it's not just, you know, one movie isn't sufficient, right? You need a collection of these movies because each of them bring a different perspective. Just like life with my son is different from life with um, your daughter. Bo, uh, it's, it's, these perspectives are needed to complete that picture. And, and there, are, there, are, there are happy ending movies, there are sad ending movies, but, you know, nevertheless, this is the reality of life. So I'm incredibly thankful for you all to have put this together, you know, made a film festival from it, and then gone beyond, right? So now, now what, do you, what do you do with this order? What do you have now? Channel? We do, yeah. I, so one, I love Pixar too. I'm right there with you. And uh, I, we were really blown away, especially that first year, about how many people were making content about this. Our initial questions were, could we do this? Could we build this? But and, and will anyone come? But really, are there other films out there besides the ones we've made? And we kind of had an idea, we'll get a handful of others. And, and we were blown away that first year in Boston by just how many people submitted, how many people are making rare disease films. And some of them are animated, some of them are two minutes long, some of them are feature films. So we, every time we open up submissions for a festival, we're really excited to see how much activity there is out there, how many different stories, how many different kinds of stories. And what we had planned to do last year was be in New York City. And we wanted to go bigger than ever in the sense of having a lot of these films that people would submit just like the other years, but also we wanted to start to teach people how to make films. So we had an idea for this filmmaker boot camp, and we were going to open it up because um, that's, a, that's a request we seem to get from people a lot. One, could you make my film? Or two, if you can't make it, can you direct me to some, some resources so I can get film about my rare disease? Because I think that's what we all do. You, you see a list of rare disease things, and you, you scan through, right? You look through, is my disease here? Am I represented? Is my kid's disease represented? And if it's not, you want it in there. You want a film. So we get that question a lot, and we really wanted to make that a part of our New York City programming uh, for May 2020. So we were underway, had a venue booked, had all these plans. We're starting to talk about some some filmmakers that we might have arranged to be the teachers of these boot camp sessions. And um, it was really going to be um, amazing. And you, you guess what happened next? We were not able to proceed as planned with uh, New York 2020. Meanwhile, though, we had all these filmmakers who had submitted these films and we were really excited about these, the new films they'd submitted and these new connections. A lot of them were people we'd never heard from before, um, new to our festival and, and, They'd submitted and we'd, we'd picked our films. We really had already established these relationships with everyone. And so we thought, if we can't do a live event, is there a way to take these submitted films and really films from any of our submission periods from previous years and try to do something that still lets, lets those films be seen and lets it be seen by as many people as possible. And we'd been talking for a little while about creating a streaming channel and it was kind of back burner because the festival was really our priority. But once, once the pandemic hit, that moved right into the front burner for us. We thought everybody's stuck at home. Everybody's hungry for content. 
they're all watching TV every night. Why not do this now? Let's get this channel up and running and, and get it to as many households as possible. And so we started with Roku and Amazon Fire TV because those are the two networks that you can be on without having a lot of coding knowledge. Neither of us uh, have that in our skill set. And so we really wanted to be able to hit as many households as we could. So between the two of them, that's 80 million households. And, uh, and we started there and we launched the channel just about a year ago. It was July 8, 2020. Yeah, and I'll add that I think we each thought a streaming channel was good, but not as good as the festival. And we've come, and they each have their strengths, but we've come to appreciate some of the differences of the channel. Obviously, if we hold a festival in San Francisco and that's not convenient for you, you're not going to go. But your living room is always convenient. And uh, also the nature of a film festival is you can only fill so much of a day and how many films can fit into that, whatever it is, eight or 10 hours. So we would find ourselves in difficult positions of turning down films. And sometimes the criteria there was, uh, we already have a Batten disease film and we don't want two. We certainly don't want three. But on the channel format, two on the same disease is a plus or three or five or as many are as good. And then it just becomes more offerings, a chance to get more in depth and as, Sanath was saying slightly different perspectives on the same story. So we're really glad now to have this other format that is the disorder channel where the sort of film inventory can approach infinite. So how big has it become? You said there were 80 million households you got to with those two channels. What kind of followership are you guys seeing? Well, there's a potential 80 million households. I'm not going to say not all 80 million have installed it yet. But we, we are able to get some limited information about our audience and, and who's installing it. But Daniel can probably speak a little bit more to that because he's pretty familiar with those statistics. I think to date in the first year, we, we are at about 4,000, maybe 4,500 um, people who have installed our channel and are, are continuing to watch it. And we've got over 100 films and videos on there now. And it's also another thing that's a difference between a festival and a channel is we tapped into sort of the television model in addition to the film model, meaning we'll have an ongoing series of uh, continuing episodes on a particular topic like vascular Ellos, Daniel's syndrome, that's Katie Wright's series, My Life with the Beds, or the incomparable Effie Parks, we all know. Um, we have... We're lucky to have the video version of her podcast, and that's a great model too. So, you know, you have a rare disease podcast, and you're ready to take it to a, a video level. Maybe you can do that with us. So, if Kevin or Sana knows anybody with a rare disease podcast that's looking to go video, maybe we should talk. I will buy a video camera for Black Friday. On this note, though, actually, something just stuck in my, in my mind. I mean. This is the ongoing series are awesome because they give continuity to people watching these channels. They give repeat engagements, kind of similar to podcasts, right? With, which has a theme. We've been watching a lot of these ongoing videos on YouTube from from people that are posting their, you know, their travel blogs, and they release a video every every week or every couple of days. And you know, they're taking us around Europe today. And, you know, I, I get to see all the cool things that they get to do. And then I get to feel like a part of the world. I'm wondering if a, a smaller version of what you do might end up going on YouTube to build more of the 
the teaser subscriber base um, because that's a, that's a good platform to build a subscriber base. And then obviously directing people to, to the Disorder channel for a more, lot more in-depth content. I don't know if you've thought about this, but I'm, I'm just it, it, it um, came to my mind while we were talking about this. So if, if you have not, it's an idea for you to follow. If you have, I'm sure you've, you've thought about this multiple times before. We are on YouTube. Yeah, we do um, just a little bit of like the, the podcast that we make with Effie. We, we'll put an episode on there and just, you know, put it out and, and try to see who's out there and try to get some reaction and, and tell them for, you know, for more, you definitely want to get the channel. It's free. Here's where to find us. So we're growing. We haven't been on YouTube very long, but we're, we're getting there. It's a great idea. And I know you have partnerships too. So with Rare New England, you've got the world of rare disease and you've got some episodes up there and those are already on YouTube. I know someone at Rare New England that I could influence, and uh, maybe we could mention the, rare, the disorder channel more often. Would start getting people to, to head there. I think that you said something earlier, Daniel. Oh no, I think it was Bo that you didn't expect to have these other films come in when you put out a, a call, and I think that that just reflects the rare disease community experience. You you get the diagnosis. It's you, it's your kid, and there's no one that you've ever heard of that's had this before. And, and you go through that whole thing, is there anybody out there? And you start to find people in your own area. But I can actually, talking to parents in particular, I can tell kind of how they've matured along this path. When they start talking about all the other rare diseases that are out there, they stop talking about their one, and they, they've, they understand, I'm one of many and I'm really interested in my one, but I share all the same values, needs, hopes, and dreams with the many. Um, and I think that's what you tap into with, with both the festival and the, the channel. That's such a great point. I, I think that's something that I've definitely personally realized over time. Going into Global Genes that first time, that first fall in 2015, I thought, this is a zero-sum game. And if there's a tension on a disease other than mine, then I lose. You know, it has to be about my thing. And if, and, and over time, very quickly, just talking to Daniel, I realized, no, 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 that isn't how it is at all. You know, if your thing gets a clinical trial or gets on Good Morning America or the Today Show or whatever, and, and a rare disease is being featured somewhere, I'm jumping up and down in my house. I'm excited. I'm thrilled for somebody else that they got that coverage that somebody's talking about rare disease in general, because it, exactly, Kevin, no, we're, we all have so much of this shared experience. and that's really what we have in common. And, and it's been really great to see how open and generous everybody has been in, in trying to lift up other diseases. That's definitely what I've seen. Yeah. And that sort of getting out of your silo mentality isn't just altruistic. It's for, for ultra rare diseases like Bo's daughter, Tess's uh, How Fountain or my son Lucas's Menke syndrome. Just think about if we advertised a screening of those two films and how few people would probably be interested in attending. But if we advertise a slate of films with a lot of diseases, and maybe we include cystic fibrosis and Duchenne and um, Batten and some of the, and SMA, some of the, even though they're still rare, larger populations of rare. Well, now you can see how we've sort of, not, not in any kind of sneaky way, but we've, leveraged in our very personal need for advocacy with the larger umbrella global attempts at advocacy. 
Yeah, I think it's it's part of the the magic of what you guys have done. So, when did you say that the channel started to come together? That was just about a year ago. It was we launched it on July eighth, twenty twenty. So that was pretty close to when you lost Lucas, wasn't it, Daniel? Yes, exactly. In fact, I think had Lucas not died at that time, he died uh, a month prior to the channel date. So he died June 5th, 2020. Bo and I were probably ready to launch the channel around then in early June. And of course, I had to take a step back and, and not think about those things for a while. But yeah, that was um, not entirely unexpected, but you never know exactly when that's going to happen. And uh, yeah, it was a, a week in the hospital with Lucas, and they don't let you out unless they think you're going to be okay. And it was it was an odd. Um, I mean, there's there's not a great way to describe it, but it was um, it, it was a challenging period of time that we thought was going to have one outcome, and the next day it had a very different outcome. We went through something similar, not similar in any scale, uh, but we went through a hospitalization with Raghav a few weeks ago. And uh, I understand that you know you have to take one day at a time and hope for the best outcome possible. Very sorry to hear that. And despite all of this, you you, you managed to pull together the channel and launch it in a, in a month after. How how did you get the strength? I I think a lot of it was because it was really almost ready to go, and and it was more like giving Bo giving me the time, you know, to just feel okay about it. I didn't want to be on social media singing, "Come join this wonderful new TV channel." So I had to get back into that state of mental readiness i suppose it was bad timing but it's also um i think i've always taken and i think many of us do take busyness and proactivity as a distract or find meaning in our struggle right in fact i've gotten to be a little more expert in the stages of grief and the fact that they apply even if death isn't necessarily on the horizon if it's just your diagnosis that you're grieving that you're grieving and either cooler ross or the, not the other one recently added a sixth stage of grief which is finding meaning or finding purpose and i think you see that in so many rare disease parents the, certainly the ones that rise into some sort of pro public profile you know whether they have a podcast or a blog or or they're just out there making speeches i see in them what appeals to me in doing this work that the hopelessness is lessened when you work against it i love it it's very true it's very true and that's one that's that's the reason we all do what we do because that's the only way it's the most practical way you can you can you can vent your 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 grief out on this note Bo, you, you raise a kid with rare disease. Um, Lucas, you've been through this enormous journey. And we all know this is going to be, you know, uh, an all-consuming endeavor that there's just basically no time or mental space away from thinking about our kids every single day. But despite that, we've pushed hard 
to to get the channel out you push hard to get the film festival out and and you're doing a lot more awesome things coming down the pipeline what advice would you give to other parents who are in a similar situation and who want to rekindle their passion i would say a couple things one it's a great thing to build into your day if you can to just be talking to other people who are doing this i find that even people who are really busy with a job and they're getting their foundation up and running and they have a million plans and they have to travel and they have a hospital stay and all that they they are always willing to carve out some time for me and uh i just find that i'm because of the channel and what we're doing i find i'm regularly talking to a lot of those folks anyway but but i also just find i want to do it anyway and so just if you can build that into your into your schedule it's a great thing to remember why you're doing it to get examples of creative ways that other people are solving some of the same problems and it's great to just remember that you're not by yourself and that really people do want to help you i'm amazed at how much people share their work that they've done they've spent months and months building something and they they put their heart into it and then they just turn around and hand it over they just email it to me for free for no no reason other than you know i'm just a rare disease dad doing the same thing and they're like here's the thing i built here it is here's here's everything about how it works i'm holding back none of the the secrets or the blueprints here it is and they just hand it over and that that always makes me so excited about this community because it's just these these beautiful friendships that develop and that spirit of sharing that i think is what keeps me going so that's one thing i would say and the other that has helped our family a lot, I think, is to really try to carve out some time for yourself and for your marriage. You know, Sanath, you mentioned how it's all consuming and there's really no break from it. And I, I feel that for sure. But my wife and I try to make a point when we can every three months, every six months to, to just maybe take a night, go away, be away from our kids, remember why we liked each other in the first place and why we got married. You know, I think the day to day and all the stuff that you have to do, all the medically complex questions you have to answer and all the just the work really it's 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 a ton of work that you hadn't planned on when you got married and i think by reconnecting with my wife we were just kind of saying to each other and to our family like we were we're choosing this again we didn't know this was all going to go down when we tied the knot you know for but we we want to keep doing this. We want to stay together. We still love each other. Let's let's come back and let's keep doing this. So those are the two things I would say. Yeah, I totally agree with Bo's comments. I also want to say it's a bit like something Kevin alluded to earlier. It's okay for rare disease families to not be advocates, to not be super active. If all you're doing is taking care of your kid, you're doing it right full stop, you can be done. It is a bit self-perpetuating that we meet each other because we are vocal. We put our stories out there, we go to conferences. And so it's almost like the self-selecting group of people that want to be more public. And if you do, I think at some point, Bo, we should maybe really spell these out because I'm realizing there are stages of advocacy. And just as stages of grief, don't happen in the order they're listed. They can happen in any order. These stages of advocacy could happen in any order, 
but there seem to be some patterns. And I think that's what Kevin was getting at. You know, earlier stages might be more about your particular needs for your child. And maybe it's, I think, rooted more in the fight, the injustice of it. It's the insurance company that won't approve this thing or the doctor who won't recommend this procedure. And you have to fight all those fights. And that turns you into an advocate, whether you like it or not. And then I think some people take that another step and they might move from fighting against the bad things to building the good things, whether that's building a foundation or working towards a treatment or a cure. So I think it might be helpful if, if, if I could crystallize these thoughts or somebody maybe already has, and we could put out there, not a roadmap on how to be an advocate, but the many ways to be an advocate that I think, but the, the big takeaway there is I don't think anybody's doing it wrong. There are lots of ways and they're all needed. And if you're doing it, congratulations and keep doing it. So I've done a lot of searching for such a, a model to look at. I haven't seen anything that captures it quite right. There's things that kind of show it in a, a chunkier way of, you know, people who are just interested in advocating and people who are like, you know, patient opinion leaders. But there isn't this sort of, well, what is the path to get there? And the difference here, so I came at this coming out of corporate world and change management and, and the stages of grief are part of change management. So I thought there's got to be something similar for advocacy, but it's different because as you said, you're doing it right if you're doing anything and you don't have to carry it all the way through. You don't have to become that super advocate. You don't, you, you need to do what you need to do. And when you get to that point, that's where you you get to and you succeed it because there's people who just wouldn't be comfortable going farther than that in in becoming public or becoming public figures about it thank you so much um both for for sharing your advice i think uh daniel we should just put something together and throw it on on a website or social media somewhere and let others add on to it i i feel like there there is something that you're you're you're, you're hitting at which is spot on and if people knew the different types of advocacy they could do um, I think it'll just make them better advocates in general. Um, and even I, I, I have different types of advocacy that I do, but you know, sometimes I'm just not able to do the type that I'm used to doing all the time because I'm busy, my son's sick or whatnot. And if I knew what others, other advocacy that I'm, I could do, it'll, it'll make me feel a lot better. Happy to help in any way I can, but you know, I'm sure the, the, the audience will also find this super useful. So please do that at some point. And um, thank you so much for sharing your advice, uh, you both in... Uh, for, for joining us today. Yeah, we really want to thank you for your time and for all you're doing for the rare community. It's just amazing to see that, you know, a chance meeting at something that Bo's wife forced him to go to turned into something that now people are looking at, like, there's a model for something. There's the way we can, we can show the rare community to the world. Um, so I really want to thank you for joining us on Raising Rare, and we hope to talk to you in the future sometime. Yeah, definitely great to talk to you both. Thanks. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare. Thank you.